Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Keith Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is based on one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, that question threw me for a loop and led me on a deep dive into the history of my faith, history of Christianity, history of the Bible, where it came from, how it was put together, uh, all these things uh, up before, between, and beyond. And that led me into, for the very first time, looking into the Catholic Church in its own words, from actual Catholic theologians. And it was then that I realized that what I thought I knew about Catholics and the practice of the Catholic faith was based in large part on misinformation, and more often than not, on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves a fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I am joined by Louis Damani Jones for what is just an absolutely incredible and fascinating conversation on a whole myriad of topics. But I'll put it this way. It begins for Lewis with growing up in a very socially active Catholic household. It begins from there and expands to, uh, well, further activism. Eventually, Lewis begins to kind of leave his faith, as some do in those teenage years and into college uh, kind of and beyond, but re-encounters his faith or Christianity uh, in an activist house working on different activist areas when he begins to, uh, to, to dialogue and question with other Christians who are, who are in that place with him too. Well, from, from there, he begins to explore other, you know, kind of faith traditions and winds up going to an Eastern Orthodox, you know, a Coptic church to begin practicing his faith and dig deep, digs deep in there, in, in the church fathers, the, the desert fathers, but encounters things, issues uh, and problems of, of unity, problems that, that, that he does not see uh, solutions to in, in that particular church, and it begins to explore the, his Catholic roots. Here, he finds a faith that he falls in love with, that, that makes sense, that it's coherent, that fits these pieces together, and underpins turns out, those social justice actions that he'd been doing all along. This is a story of how the Catholic faith uh, draws together all kinds of things, from race to social justice issues to how we can really incarnationally live out what the church envisions for human flourishing and for the human person. It's a fantastic conversation about this whole range of topics, the African-American experience in the Catholic Church, what social justice is, how those things are authentically Catholic, and, well, an awesome Catholic conversion thrown in just for extra good measure. It's a wonderful conversation, and Lewis is a fantastic guy. I had an absolute blast with this conversation. He's passionate, he's engaging, he loves this topic, and just wants to draw others in. It's awesome. I think you will love it. This conversation and others on this show are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And I have two new sponsors to thank for this show for helping to underpin this thing. Thank you, William, and thank you, Heather, for your generous support of the show. It's people like you, you guys who underpin this show, help us to pay for the different kind of cost of hosting and recording and capturing and the equipment and all these kinds of things, guys. 
thank you. Thank you very much for helping to support this show. If you want to join this crew of illustrious, fantastic people, saints in the making, those links are in the show notes. And thanks to all those who are supporting this show. You guys are incredible. And now, without any further ado, I am happy to announce, happy to share with you my fantastic conversation with Louis Damani Jones. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, uh, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are listening on podcast, thank you. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please make sure you leave a rating and a review that helps to push the podcast out to new listeners and hear conversations like this one. And thanks for listening. If you're watching on YouTube, thank you so much, guys. Please hit the bell, subscribe to our channel, and hit that like button as well to get this video spread far and wide so others hear these fantastic conversations. I am joined this week by Louis Damani Jones. He is a therapist working in private practice and in the Catholic hospital system. He is a fantastic guy with an awesome, awesome story uh, that I can't wait to bring to you. So, Louis, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. And hello. I'm so honored to be here. Uh, and hello to you as well. And hello to everyone watching. Oh, thank you so much. I first uh, heard your name, came across my desk uh, here in the studio because this guy called Edward Herrera was doing a, a podcast, a fantastic podcast called The Ark and the Dove. Very well produced, fantastic content, great podcast. I love it. And he asked if I, he could use a clip from my show, an interview that I did with Mike Aquilina early church historian on the uh, the roots of the Catholic Church in North Africa. I said, sure, absolutely. Uh, he added the clip in an episode. I listened to it. The, the fantastic podcast. I'll put links to it in the notes of this show because it's a great podcast on kind of the uh, the experience of and the development and like the role and history of kind of the, of, of the black um, uh, experience in the Catholic Church, I think is uh, how, how I can put it. A great podcast. Mm-hmm. And he... I, we had the conversation. Then he emailed back a little bit later and said, hey, by the way, if you want a great guest to talk about somebody who can talk about his experiences, his unique experiences, uh, being Catholic, being Black, working on social issues in the church, uh, struggling with and kind of understanding and exploring race issues and social justice issues in a Catholic context, uh, I got this guy, this guy, uh, Lewis, you should talk to. And I said, that's fantastic because... You know, and I mentioned this to you before <laughs> before we hit record, Lewis, but you know, this this show, lots of listeners to this show, viewers of this show, are people who are looking into the Catholic Church. They're curious what we're doing over here, you know, who we are, what what we believe, why we do certain weird things that we do. And a number of the emails that I've had to this show have been people who are like, look, I'm uh, in the black church. I've been in the black church my whole life, raised in the black church, you know, or, I, or I'm in a, a, with a group of, of charismatic Christians, and my whole family is, is part of this. Uh, no one that I know is even considered Catholic, exploring Catholicism. Is there a place for me, like, you know, as, as, a, as a black person, as a, as a black Christian, in the Catholic Church, what's the experience of other Black Catholics? What's is is there a place for me in the Church? Mm. I've had a number of those emails, and I have kept my ear to the ground as a result of emails like that that I get. And then when Edwards email came across my desk saying, "Hey, I got this guy," I thought, "Perfect, let's let's jump on this." Um, not that you, of course, and we mentioned this before too, before I hit record, and you 
you wisely said, yeah, <laughs> of course not. Right. <laughs> you, you can't speak for all of every person who is black and Catholic in the entire uh, United States of America. Just to let you all know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Canada. We're not, we're not going <laughs> to attempt that. But I think, you know, I'm excited to have somebody on the show who can speak to a bit of, you know, your experience in that context, mm-hmm. you know, to encourage others, um, not only in their faith journey in general, because yours is a, a fantastic story. I've heard bits and pieces of it, and it's amazing. But to say, yes, look, h- here is somebody who, who, you know, who can share their experience as a black Catholic. So yeah, th- there's a, there's, then maybe you'll say, no, there's not a place that I'm leaving. But as far as I know, no. you know <laughs> that'd be a, a great twist. We'll end it right here. But yeah, I think you have a great perspective, and I'm excited for you to share it on, on this show. And I thank you for being here. And I want to get out of the way, I think, first of all, though, and let you kind of begin to unpack your story because I think mm-hmm. your, your, you know, your faith journey in general is a fantastic one. And there are some interesting twists and turns. And uh, I think what we'll first do, if you're okay with that, is just, you know, you go for it. Start where you want to start. We'll jump in along the way. And then we'll explore some of these issues that I know are, are part of your story. So they'll, they'll come up, I think, mm-hmm. naturally. But they really touch on those kind of, you know, what is the church doing about this? Or how does the church feel about this? Or how does this thing sure. intersect with the church, you know, concerning race issues and being a black person in, in America, in Canada, mm-hmm. in, in the Catholic Church? So I'll let you just, you know, go ahead, begin where you want to begin, and we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah, so thanks for that introduction. I just want to open up and tell you, if you are listening to this podcast and you are somebody of the African-American experience or of any kind of black experience, And you're wondering if the Catholic Church is a home for you, is a place where you can be fully yourself, your own culture. You may know nobody, never seen anyone who's both black and Catholic, something I've actually gotten myself. And I want to tell you that this is your home, actually. Welcome home. Um, This is the home that you've been looking for. And I I say that with confidence. Um, And I'll just tell you a little bit of my story just to get into that. Um, You know, my uh, have a unique uh, upbringing or a unique kind of early childhood experience. Uh, My dad, my mom, my godmother. Um, uh, godfather as well, and, and some other family friends and people who are close to my family um, actually started a intentional community. Yeah, I don't use the term homeless shelter, although it was for people who were experiencing homelessness, were formerly incarcerated, um, typically had HIV, AIDS. Um, you know, that was my dad's experience. And um, he actually was a part of this place called uh, Emmaus House, which came out of this movement called the Emmaus Movement, founded in France. And so this was in New York and, um, and basically, you know, to tell his story, which really talks a lot about this organization that they created, um, you know, he was experiencing all of these things. He found out he had, um, HIV AIDS. This was in the late eighties and, um, you know, found this community basically where he wasn't just a person who was being served. Right. But if anyone knows anything about the Emmaus movement, it's all about bringing you in and you also become someone who serves. Right. And that was deeply inspiring to him. It felt empowering to him. Um, and from that experience, he met a priest, Father David Kirk, who was actually a well-known priest in his own. He had kind of a unique story himself, um, an Eastern Catholic um, person, priest. Um, but basically, through that relationship, ended up kind of being inspired to create his own community that had the same spirit and ethos. Um, and he also did that with my mom and my god godparents, and that was called Stand Up Harlem. That was in Harlem, Manhattan, and I was born in that community. Awesome. So, um, you know. You know, my, I say born in it in the sense that my family lived there while I was born. Uh, I was born in a hospital, but at, <laughs> during, while they were at, at that community. Um, 
And so, yeah, and in that spirit, actually, you know, it, it was not a religious organization per se, but it was deeply spiritual. Right? It was this kind of spiritual, but not religious. A lot of different spiritualities there. Some people were Catholic practicing. Um, for example, they even used uh, a book by a person named Jean Vanier, who, you know, a lot of controversy around him at this point, but at yeah. that time was well known for the founding of the large communities. And so they used one of his books, Community and Growth, which is all about living intentional community. And so had a lot of spiritual elements, but not necessarily Catholic, but that spirituality of kind of social activism and, and charitable works um, mixed with kind of spirituality was a really big part of kind of my cultural ethos um, at a young age. Um, eventually, my mom moved me actually into Southern Illinois, where she is from originally, right before she moved to New York and started that community. And so then I spent the rest of my life in the St. Louis metropolitan area. If you know anything about St. Louis, it's Eastern Missouri. The St. Louis metro region is Eastern Missouri and Southern Illinois. Um, right there on the Mississippi River. And so I lived in both parts of that of that area, both in the Illinois and Missouri part. Um, and so K through fifth, I actually lived in North St. Louis County, and that'll be relevant later. North St. Louis County in a, in a little area um, called Normandy. Um, and yeah, went K through fifth to a Catholic school. Didn't really read the Bible uh, or anything like that at home, the catechism, but you, you're kind of like, uh, brought into this community parish life, right? Uh, that, that area I was living at was a very uh, impoverished area, very economically disadvantaged area in North St. Louis County. If you know anything about North St. Louis, then you know uh, kind of where I'm talking about. And so the community at the church itself and the school was very tight knit. And so that community life was also very important for me there. It just was like, you know, this is what, you know, I, I thought of Catholicism as not really the faith, but kind of this community living, um, the downside of that is that <laughs> I didn't really have any kind of faith formation outside of that. I didn't have a spirit of personal relationship with Christ. Like I, I it, it wasn't really deeply important to me. Um, and, you know, I, I would say like the most kind of religious thing I did outside of mass, you know, at times in, in school was listening to Kirk Franklin. So for those <laughs> folks who are um, uh, African, African-American in the black church, you know, Kirk Franklin. And we, we did listen to gospel music and stuff like that in the car. And, and um, so I ended up, my mom got married um, when I was about sixth grade-ish. And so I ended up moving to public school, again, back on the Illinois side. So I moved back over to the Illinois side, went to public school. And that was like a bro- complete clean break from the Catholic experience because I was so attached to that particular community life that the faith wasn't really alive in my heart. And so it was kind of a slow break from the slow kind of a deterioration for me, even though the break was clean. You know, I did go through confirmation, which was kind of like the last little uh, a little uh, hanging on thread before that snapped. Yeah, yeah. And I did finish all my sacraments there. Um, and so, yeah, then I was in high school and that's when my spirit of activism, I, I would say like late middle school, um, high school really kicked into gear. So I went to my first big protest when I was 12. So that was middle school years. Um, it was at the UN with my dad, of course. Um, and uh, Rosie Perez was there and we were protesting because the UN um, had made promises about ending AIDS as we know it, which that did not happen at that time. Um, and so we were protesting basically against that. And it was huge protest. I mean, I was like, I was carrying all these banners, like with these sex workers and all this kind of, it was a crazy time. Um, and now it's well, it just a big memory ingrained <laughs> in my mind. And then, uh, we had shirts, everyone had shirts that said HIV positive on them, even though we're not, I'm not HIV positive, but we, it was kind of a part of the protest. Yeah. And, uh, cause the whole thing was like, you can't tell right. Who has it externally. 
And so um, ended up wearing that to school, which was a big deal. Um, <laughs> caused a little stir when I wore an HIV positive shirt to school. Um, my science teacher, I remember walking in and my science teacher just like staring at me like the whole time. And then like I sat down and she was like, go to the principal's office. I was like, all right. So then I left and then went to the principal's office and uh, we're United States based. And so the freedom of speech plays into that when you're in a public school, went to the principal's office and he was like, I can't make you take off the shirt. Please take off the shirt. We all saw the shirt. It was like a big deal. <laughs> um, my mom got called, everything like that. That was like my first like mini protest or whatever yeah, yeah. type of thing I did. Um, and so, yeah, that it continued from there. You know, through a high school, I was engaged in different stuff. I volunteered with, with Planned Parenthood, actually, because contraception is a big part of, um, you know, how people were combating HIV AIDS. And there's a lot of controversy with that, even in the church. But, um, you know, that was something big. So I was a part of this group called Teen Advocates for Sexual Health which is really about promoting contraception to young people and other people, as well as things around abortion and things like that. I was engaged in that from probably like ninth, 11th grade or so. Um, just like deeply in love with politics. I would watch like CNN, MSCBC, like all day. Like I was just like very politically oriented and like faith was like nothing to me. Right. Yeah. Politics and, and activism was like my religion. Um, although like I did kind of have this draw to like read kind of weird spiritual stuff like um or not weird i would say but like out of the box kind of things like siddhartha um you know uh, i actually read parts of the quran when i was in when i was at that age and then also read some later it's like different stuff like that whatever was not christian yeah. i wasn't like anti-christian but it just was like not relevant to me yeah. right um so then like fast forward um you know i i'll fast forward a lot and fast forward to around 2014 and um, I had done it. Uh, I had been a part of this project out in Chicago um, doing it was kind of a community organizing project called Chicago Votes. It was on the streets of the south side of Chicago uh, doing a lot of stuff there. Came back down to Southern Illinois. And, um, you know, during that time, I was taking college classes and uh, Michael Brown, the entire situation with Michael Brown happened. Uh, and Michael Brown, if anyone knows the situation, um, he lived in an area called Ferguson, Missouri, which was. Um, the next town over from where I went to elementary school as a young kid. So he lived in the oh, town very oh, close wow. to me. I had ridden my bike over there like all the time. We used to ride over this place called Whistle Stop in Ferguson, which was like an ice cream place. So anyways, it was like a big part. It was, it was, it was very surprising to me. And like, there's a lot of energy. I mean, people were hitting the streets. Um, and for me, as somebody who like had lived in this community, like very close by there, I felt like some identification with the situation and just ran out. Uh, um, very soon after uh, everything was taking off, I mean, I was out there in the protests um, out there on the street, they had like the armored vehicles, like they had the cops with the huge shields. I mean, people throwing tear gas. It was crazy. I was out at night. People were burning down buildings, houses, a gas station. Famously, that person ended up going to jail for a long period of time uh, for blowing up this gas station. I mean, so many things. It was it was a crazy time. And uh, I ended up getting recruited to join this um, this project called Organization for Black Struggle, which was um, an organization deeply rooted in that community in the past. And this was a uh, kind of a not being pejorative, it was kind of like a black nationalist Marxist organization in orientation. That's how they would probably describe themselves. And um, so got trained by them. I was paid to be trained by them. And then during my training with them, um, actually a, a person came and gave a talk about a project they were starting, which was this black and brown empowerment house. It was like a cooperative living communal house for people who were doing activist work. And I was like, this sounds a lot like what my family did. Like, and so I was like super drawn to this cooperative lifestyle, communal lifestyle kind of thing. Ended up uh, becoming the founding, one of the founding members of that house, um, which is called the Roots Co-op. It still exists to this day, although it's called um, Art House now. 
And um, yeah. And then, you know, at that house is when it really, like, I feel like God started to like grab me. Um, and when I was at that house, there was actually a guy from union theological seminary who lived in that house. He was an activist um, guy, very much so in the liberation theology. And at this time I was really getting drawn to like reading the Bible. And I happened to have Catholic Bibles because I was Catholic growing up. Right? So I, oh, the Bibles I had were like Catholic ones. So I was reading like the book of the book of wisdom, like the wisdom of Ben Sirach. So then we were like debating about like these books being in the Bible or not being in the Bible. Like it was like, it, it started to like, I don't know. It was, God was doing something. It wasn't like visible at the time, but you could feel like I was feeling like I was being pulled. And then I just felt like the desire to start like listening to the Psalms. And so like I would play recordings of the Psalms and I would play like hymns and stuff like in my room. Like it was just, it was very, not congruent with what was happening, like in this activist house. It was just, like, I was going out to protest and like, I remember going up to Chicago for a big protest. And like, I was just like feeling like God was pulling me somewhere, but I had no church community. I was literally just me, the Bible, like, you know, and these hymns and all the stuff I was listening to and conversation I was having. Um, and so eventually, you know, this is kind of where the rubber starts to hit the road with me, like my return to the church. And so um, ended up like, as I was like listening to the Psalms and stuff like that, you know, if you, um, you know, as you're going things like Psalms and hymns, you start to see some interesting stuff from like the Eastern Orthodox community and the Catholic community start to pop up. But uh, I was drawn to the Eastern Orthodox hymns and uh, it was like this monk chanting this Psalm. And I didn't like know it was an Eastern Orthodox monk at the time, but it was like the Psalm. And then I can't remember what Psalm it was, but he was chanting it. And when he started the chant, I just remember the experience of hearing it felt like God was in this, like the Holy Spirit, like the same God, who I felt speaking to me through the Bible and like drawing me into himself through the Bible was speaking to me through like this chant that this monk was like doing. And like something about it was just felt so inspired, like just the deepness and the beauty and like the mystery of the chant. And like, I had never heard chant before. Like, I mean, at least nothing that I ever remembered. And so it was very like new to me. And I'm one of those people who was like really at that age, especially was really into like whatever is like mysterious, like kind of esoteric, you know, and I was like, oh man, this is like super like mystical, whatever. And I was just like drawn to it. So I was like listening yeah. to those. And um and yeah, just kept listening. And then eventually I was like, what is this? Like what is like this, like what is Eastern Orthodoxy? Like what is that? And so this is the first time I ever had come across this. So I'm like reading into that. And um, you know, it's really interesting. And then, you know, I'm starting to listen to some other like kind of Orthodox different hymns. And I find out eventually that there's like different types of Orthodox hymns. Like, so I'm listening to like the Coptic hymns. I'm listening to like the, the Eastern Orthodox hymns, like Greeks and like um, other people. Even I listen to some Armenian hymns, like just like a lot of stuff, which are very beautiful, by the way. Um, but, you know, so I was really drawn to that. And so I was like, man, like I really want to like eventually like go to one of these places. Like I want to see what it's like, like at that place. And so, um, you know, in the activist house, people would sometimes stay there. It was like an activist, like, house so you know it was a place where people also who didn't really have a home but were doing actions throughout the community could come and like leave their families sometimes and like go and do actions or like just crash for months or whatever and so at one time we had uh this activist guy leave his family with us he was doing act uh actions up in northwest pacific northwest and stuff like that and um and so his family was with us and one sunday i was like this is the sunday i'm just gonna go so i actually asked his his wife and kids that he wasn't there, but I asked them, Hey, I'm going to go to this church. You all want to come with me? They're like, Oh yeah, sure. We'll come. So then we ended up going to the Coptic Orthodox <laughs> church. So the, for the first time I went to this Coptic Orthodox church, I never stepped foot in an Orthodox church in my life. I hadn't been in any kind of apostolic church for like, I don't know, a long time. And I just, I walk in fresh. Right. And these other folks were actually uh, African-American had never been to any type of like non-Protestant 
uh, experience at all. So it was like culture shock. So uh, we are, we're there, we're in the back, definitely feeling like out of place. Um, and a priest, you know, at the very beginning of the liturgy, they do, uh, they incense the icons, right, with this thing they call the shoria. So he's going around incensing the icons, and we're in the back, and so he's, he's coming by us, incensing, and he just, like, stops for a minute, he looks at me, and he's like, are you all Ethiopian? And I'm like, no. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, okay. And that's the only word he said to us, and I only come, like, find out later that, of course, he says that because he's, like, trying to see if we can take communion, because, like, you know, that's, they're in, they're in communion, right, with the, with the, uh, with the Ethiopian Orthodox, yeah, okay. and so they want to know, like, are you, like, prize? like, what are you, but anyways, I didn't know that at the time, so I was like, why did you just ask me if I'm Ethiopian? <laughs> it was very weird at the time. Um, but anyways, so that, that was my first experience, and it was very bizarre. It was very weird. It, it was a lot of incense, a lot of, like, but I was still drawn to it, and so they did not have a great time. I had an awesome <laughs> time. Um, and so, yeah, ended up coming back by myself later, and, um, and that priest who incensed the Shoria or took the Shoria and incensed the icon became my first spiritual father. So I ended up just showing up and, um, you know, he, after, over time, he was like, Hey, like we should probably talk. Um, you've been coming here <laughs> like, and, and, you know, we just ended up talking and that's how you know, he became my spiritual father. And, um, and so I ended up kind of becoming a part of the Coptic Orthodox church. Um, yeah, I learned everything from the early church fathers to the desert fathers to, um, what it means to have a prayer rule. Like, what does it mean to pray every day? Like, you know, this is something like that, you know, even in many different church communities, it's like, what does prayer actually look like? I learned what that is. I learned what fasting really looks like. I learned about the liturgical seasons and the history of the liturgy. Why do we do something called a liturgy? What is that? Like, it was like, even though I had experienced some of those things in childhood through the, like my Catholic upbringing, I never had really encountered it. Like, I didn't really understand. It was kind of just like this exterior. I didn't really have any, understanding of how this connects to my own personal relationship with Christ or like God or anything. And so it was just a transformational experience. I was just you know, so indebted to, to that priest for his mentorship. And it actually came because he was a, he had been an African missionary. He had actually was from Egypt originally, but he had been a missionary in Kenya. And so he had a very apostolic spirit of like, let me like, I want to talk to people like, especially people who like may not have any background in like what we're doing here. And he was just very evangelical in that way. And so, like, I just am so indebted to him and his family. Um, so over time, you know, I continued to pray with them and grow with them for some years. And, um, you know, I, we do this Bible study also. You know, if, anyone, if you know anything about the Orthodox community uh, or Orthodox communities, especially ones like the Coptic Orthodox, you know that so many of them are immigrant communities. And so a lot of times they have, like, bifurcation between the English folks and the people who speak whatever language of the country they're from. So in our case, it's Arabic. So uh, in the Egyptian, for example, in the Egyptian liturgy, they often pray Coptic, Greek, Arabic, English, like that, all that's in one liturgy. But when it comes to things like Bible studies, um, other things like that, a lot of that stuff was in Arabic, and then there would be, like, an English kind of English side group. And so in the English Bible study, uh, it was run by an Ethiopian deacon, and I would help out as well. Um, one time we had a question from a woman. She was a doctor um, and at the English Bible study, and she asked, uh, well, I got invited to a Catholic wedding. Like, what do I do when I go? Can I take communion there? And the Ethiopian deacon is like, oh, these are heretics. And excuse me, of course not. You can never take communion with the Catholics. And I was, like, jumping on, like, yeah, like, that's the Orthodox, like, opinion. Like, yeah. And, like, I was, like, really excited about it. Um, but I realized, like, why am I like, why, where's the opposition? Like where, like, I kind of, you know, I was thinking about like, what does make that not right? Like what, what really is the reason why that's not right? And it led to me to do a way deeper dive into 
like the the divisions in the church, right, which happened as early as the yeah. the fourth and fifth centuries. And like I just dive in, and like as I'm reading, I'm realizing like I'm believing the Catholic side, like <laughs> like of, of these arguments. So like for example, like when it comes to the Council of Chalcedon, which is like the big break with the Oriental Orthodox or the uh, the Egyptian community, and like the Catholic Church, um, this document, the Tome of Leo, where Leo writes it with great beauty about the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And like, I had heard them talk about the Tome of Leo as like this great, almost like heretical document. Like, oh, it's so horrible. Like, oh, the Tome of Leo. And I'm like, this is beautiful. Like, this is like so true. And so and, like, even with like all like the, the things I heard, I was like, wow, this is like so objectively beautiful and true. Um, I was just drawn to it. I was like, convicted by it. And as I kept reading all the councils, learning more about like, we talk about the humanity of Christ. Like, what does it mean that Christ has, uh, fully human will and a divine will. And like, just like, I was just like amazed by what I was reading about all these councils. Um, and eventually got to the end and I was like, I, I have to be, I have to be either, either Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. And then I started reading the other councils, right. All the way up into the second Vatican council. And that was, that sold me. I was like, I'm, I have to be Catholic. Um, and <laughs> it was like through reading those summaries and also reading like some of uh, the actual documents themselves when they were available it just like, I just was convicted. And so I actually spent some time still attending the Coptic Orthodox liturgies um, while believing in my heart, like in Catholicism. And it was like a weird place to be. Yeah. And um, I was asked before, like, what was like the last thing to fall for Catholicism? And it was the Pope, right? It was like this idea of like, okay, well, uh, even the cops actually have, they call their leader a Pope as well. Cause it's in, they've done that all the way since, I don't know, like the fourth century or very early as well. Um, but like this idea of like this universal Pope, like that was like the last thing to fall. But for me, what was so powerful is, excuse me, in the early church fathers, you see them talking about the Bishop of Rome making decisions, <laughs> like being the person. And they're just out of their, out of really like charity and apostolic tradition are saying like, yeah, like, of course we're going to go to the Bishop of Rome. Like he's going to, and they're doing this all the way from like the second, third century. I'm like, wow, like this is like rooted in the early church. And that was like the last thing to fall. Right. And that was like kind of the hardest thing. And then after that, it was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm, I gotta leave. And uh, I remember after one service, me sitting down in the basement, talking to um, the priest and a group of elderly uh, Egyptian women who I love. And I was <laughs> sitting there after, after the service. And I just like told him, I was like, I'm, I'm going to become Catholic. And the women are just like, no, Lewis, like, how could you? Cause I'm like, obviously like, I'm like the token convert. Like they're like loving me. I'm like, <laughs> it's like very unusual. And so it, you know, the priest was like, is it me? Is it something I did? Did I do something? I was like, no, no, no. It's like, it's, um, anyways, to this day, like the, the priest, that was my spiritual father. I still talk to him, like touch, but he's, he's, I still tell him I pray for him. Cause, and I ask his for his prayers cause he's truly a holy man. Um, but anyway, so ended up, yeah, just, um, after that transitioning in the, in the Catholic church just showed up, gave a huge confession of like my whole life of like, I can't believe like I've gone through this whole life journey. Um, but yeah. And so for me, you know, obviously a big part of my story has been this like social way that I'm engaging. And when I was with the cops, um, the Coptic Orthodox Church, you know, they're very ascetic in their spirituality, right? They're very ascetic. Um, also, they're an immigrant community. So like the United States social, political and economic culture is like so different than Egypt. So it's like their engagement is just very limited. And so like it was it was kind of almost like a reclusive time for me. I did do some stuff um, as it pertains to like you know, I was a, the chairperson of In Defense of Christians, which was fighting for Christians in the Middle East uh, for the St. Louis area and different things. But my activism was kind of, it was, it was oddly situated. I didn't really know what to do with this. And 
you know, it's when I came back into the Catholic church that that found a purification. Um, you know, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, this awesome uh, theologian and writer, he, he actually had this phrase of, of faith purifies reason. Revelation purifies reason, purifies the intellect. And that's how I felt. Like, I felt like, you know, these inclinations that I had to do things to make the world a better place found its fulfillment in what the church taught about how to make the world a better place. And that was so congruent. Like, it was not like, you know, over here I have my faith and over here I have this desire for a better world. But it, the church, especially in the beauty of the Second Vatican Council documents, really like in a way that I've never read anywhere else, just paints the picture of this is all connected to what Christ did. This is all connected to Christ's incarnation, how he united himself in yeah, some way to yeah, every human yeah. person. And how our joys, the joys and hopes and sorrows of, of those are really our joys because Christ came to share in our life and we're called to share in the lives of others. And, um, and it was just a very beautiful way of bringing everything together. And so for me, as I came back to the church, I began to get involved in so many of the ways that the Catholic Church begins to try to live this ministry out in so many ways. Like we work with Catholic Charities, um, a place called Catholic Urban Programs where I'm on the board there, um, a Catholic Campaign for Human Development where I've worked with. Um, for some years. And so all these different ways that the church attempts to live out and manifest its, its really evangelical commitment in the social sphere um, has been a big part of my life since coming back to the church. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a fantastic story. Doesn't disappoint at all, uh, Lewis. I, I, I love it. And lots of twists and turns. I think it's really interesting. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's lots to dig into there. And I, I, I want to maybe begin with the, this idea of Kind of the uniquely Catholic experience of that incarnational idea. I, you know, I first encountered this. So I was evangelical for a lot of my my life since age like you know thirteen mm-hmm. or so, up into university and beyond. Uh, then I began exploring Catholicism, and I became Catholic. My wife became Catholic the year after. We're now we're a big family of Catholics. But <laughs> I, I read very. I, sometime in university, I read this. I read. I can't remember even the, the name of the author anymore. But it was an evangelical author who was talking about the idea of the incarnation. I I couldn't put words to it at the time, but the idea that Christ Mm. came to redeem everything, not just me personally and us, but everything, all of creation, right? To to raise all this up into into him. And at the time, that Mm. language for me as a, I I was a nominally kind of Pentecostal, non-denominational evangelical, and I kind of went, wow, yeah. Like, not just me is saved, not just I'm saved, but like yeah. God wants to redeem everything, all of creation and everything, mm-hmm. all of our actions. And that was a very new idea for me. And it wouldn't be until I became Catholic and began exploring, you know, Catholic theology and digging deep into like documents of, of Vatican II and the documents of, of the, the church that I, re- that I realized that, wait a minute, this, this is kind of the proper home for that, right? The sacraments are very tangible and incarnational, right? The, the, the stance of the church as a missionary organization is very incarnational, right? It wants to redeem all things, not just to save us, right? But to save all of creation, all of humanity, all of our actions, you know, we can transform and, and do for Christ, right? Be part of that mission of redeeming everything. And, and so many great saints, right, throughout time have talked about, yeah. do, do those things, you know, do your actions oriented towards Christ and they're that much more powerful to work in that redemptive kind of spirit. So when you talk about that, that idea, right, I'm, th- I, I'm thinking of, yeah, that, that for me felt so right and proper. And that thing that I was looking for back as an evangelical, I found in the Catholic Church, 
I guess how much more can that work of of you know those those social justice ideas, those things of 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 redeeming all things. I I feel like uh, you know that is is very much at home with the Catholic Church and very much kind of enlivened by by the Catholic faith, right? Those actions not just done for for the lesser, not just done for uh, you know to end you know, homelessness or address development of impoverished communities or or help migrant mm-hmm. workers, right? Or help immigrants come into the country, you know, find places to connect and, and to grow. But doing all that, th- all of that, th- you know, through Christ, in, in Christ, mm-hmm. in that incarnational, you know, aspect as a, as a Catholic, right? That seems to me so much more powerful. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I mean, because people of all different backgrounds do great things. Um, you know, they help people and whatever. Um, but the reason, you know, all the way from the earliest days of the church, and I think this is really important, like from the Bible, um, Pope Benedict in his document, Caritas, uh, Deus Caritas, as God is love, he writes this in a beautiful document. In that document, he has kind of a dest- uh, description of the history of the church's charitable works in the world. And in that, he talks about just how the even the role of the deacon, if you see that the, the deacon yeah, um, yeah, yeah. being created as a role, is that ministry is literally the ministry of charity. It's like yeah. this the way that that the apostles, you know, um, instituted a, this ministry of charity as an aspect of the church hierarchy itself. And then even in the early church, the early, early days of the church, in the fourth century, sixth century, um, in Egypt, actually, he talks about this creation of this idea of the diaconia, right? All the way from the early church, which was really like this charitable agency, right, of the church, but was created in this in the early church time period where we wouldn't think anything like that was happening. These were organically coming up. The Holy Spirit was organically developing these institutionalized ministries. So many Christians um, that I've talked to, you know, will say, of course, I need to do charitable works. Of course, like, I need to help my neighbor, right? I read the Good Samaritan. I read, you know, so many things that John says about if I don't love my brother, I'm not loving God. Like, I see this God's love. I see all that. Um, and so I, I want to help. And even what James says about the widow and the orphan, like his true religion, I see all that. But that doesn't mean like we should create an agency or we should do some type of like organized. And Pope Benedict says the exact opposite. He says if we're he said if we're going to do charity, charity, it should be organized. Like it shouldn't be unorganized, disorganized, kind of random action, ad hoc stuff that we're doing. Right? It should be actually organized because it's all the more perfect to have organized works of charity as opposed to disorganized works of charity. Right. Um, so obviously that doesn't at all remove our own individual responsibility for doing those things. No, actually, we need those things. And even if you go back to the Old Testament, I mean, how many of these these just men of the Old Testament, like their whole thing is doing these awesome charitable works, just being like burying the widow and burying those who are, who are passed away in situations where like their life is at risk or just all these charitable things that they do as being the signature thing that shows how just they are. I mean, that's all the way from through the prophets as well. So that's always been there. Of course, we have to do that individually, but also collectively. I will make this distinction, though, that I think is important, and Pope Benedict also makes this distinction, between the works of charity and the works of justice and that were alluded to. Um, so, the, so the church traditionally believes that we do need to work for social justice in the world, right? We need to do charity, and the charity that the church does, we see it all over, is so organized, and even many, you know, many groups do this, but the church has been you know, in many states in the United States, globally is the biggest charitable service provider of anyone. Yeah, we yeah, do it all. Yeah. We also, through our charitable spirit, you know, created hospitals. Schools were charitable works in many respects. So we've always, always done that. 
But the proclamation of justice and creating a more just society, the church as church does that most properly, you know, in terms of the hierarchy and instructing the lay faithful of how to carry out their mission in the world with the utmost perfection, especially in those tasks that they find themselves in to make the world, to bring the world closer to Christ, right? As like an offering, right? Every single person, no matter what, you know, role you have in society as a layperson, you're doing work, whether you're a farmer, whether you're um, a, a stay at home mother, whether you're a, a male person, whether you're an elected official, your job has some social aspect. You're a part of a network of social relationships. That's inescapable. And I don't think anyone would say, yes, we have all these social relationships and they should be totally devoid of the gospel. Of course, we wouldn't say that. We would say they need to be infused with the spirit of the gospel. All of our social relationships, the way that we do all of our ordinary work has to be completely gospel oriented. And that's really what the church's teaching on social doctrine is. That's what the church's social teaching is. It's how do we apply the gospel to all of these different aspects of our life, like whether it be economics, whether it be you know um, working, work itself is actually a social act. And so, what is work? What is the dignity of work itself? All the way from the book of Genesis, what, why is why is work? You know this this core commandment that God gives. All these things are a part of what it means to live out the gospel in, in social relations. So I think when we talk about social justice, even we really have to look at it, although there's a, there's a technical term of social justice, which I think is important, like this development from this concept of general justice, like social justice is important as a concept, but I think I want to bring it down and say like all of our actions that we carry out justly have a social dimension, right? And so like, you know, as we, if you do your work well, like if you're, you're doing those small things, well, that is, if you spread that out, that leads to, that can lead to social injustice or a more just society, how you do your own individual work. And so it's not just in these big macro issues, right? I want to make it, it's every person has a little role to play and all your actions have a social dimension, which is why the church so much uh, calls us to take a heart and an ear to social justice, both in our own small spheres of influence and then in the society at large. Priests and uh, religious um, clergy, these folks are not the folks who have the calling to transform society from within, right? They have actually come out of the world, right? <laughs> so, but we as lay people um, have been called, that's our, our particular state. Our particular spirituality is how we live our family life, which is also a social, a set of social relationships, yeah. how we live in our communities, again, how we do our work. And so um, I want to make social justice super practical. And that's exactly how we talk about social justice as it pertains uh, to our Catholic social doctrine. Yeah. Um, and it, so it takes all those things into account and those big macro issues too. <laughs> that's fantastic. Don't stop talking. That's, that's amazing stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I love that, that, that too is like, that's uniquely Catholic. So I'm thinking of, I've uh, done a lot of different work in different areas of, of social, uh, you know, just sat on boards and, and committees and worked mm-hmm. in my communities. And there's a difference. And I'm sure you, you understand this too. Hopefully I can articulate this. Maybe you can help me <laughs> when I finish here for <laughs> listeners. But there's a difference between, you know, working in the community towards an issue and working, like you say, on yourself and towards that issue. Like that's uniquely Catholic, right? That, okay, so I can advocate for, for helping, you know, to eradicate homelessness in this community. That's great. But I can also 
work on myself, the, the, the sin in myself that causes greed, you know, that takes from others to, to give to me, that makes me less charitable, like, and then yes. also do the, the other work, right? There's, that's uniquely yeah. Catholic that says, look, there's me and there's the world, not just the world to fix. It starts with me, right? I think that's such an, such an important point you've underscored there, Lewis. I, I, yeah, I think one of the important contributions, you know, that Catholic social, the, the teaching of the, of, of the church and the tradition has to bear on social things is the fact that all of these social structures, right, all of these institutions are birthed from the heart of people. Yeah. It all starts with the heart of a person. These are not impersonal structures, right? These, these all have been created by human persons. And so, yes, the converted heart creates converted structures. And just like how, you know, how when we go into, um, you know, when we encounter homelessness and, and, and brokenness, you know, economically speaking and things like that. Um, although definitely we should, we should strive to, to improve our social conditions as best as we can to help every single human person to thrive at their fullest potential. We also have to recognize, too, that this may reflect some brokenness that I may have. Like, how, how do I treat those who are marginalized in my own family, in my own yeah, community, yeah. in my extended family? And Because sometimes we can uh, overly externalize to the point where we, again, we, we're not aware of the fact that these structures, like, because even in our own actions, we can think we're doing the right thing. But if we're not fully having that conversion experience, that relationship with Christ, we may accidentally create new structures that are actually sure, worse yeah. than the old structure. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, so the whole point is like, we have to, it's a, it's a both and right. It's not just, you know, um, work externally, but then not taking care of myself or not growing in my own spirit or not having that doing external conversion without the internal conversion. No, we have to internally convert first. And it's through our encounter with Christ, it's through our changed self that we'll be able to create those new relationships, those new structures and infuse those structures and relationships that exist with an evangelical spirit, a spirit of um, the gospel and Jesus Christ first. Um, yeah, because all of society has its end, right, in, in God. And so if our hearts don't have that orientation, then we can begin to create structures that don't have that orientation as well. Um, and Pope Benedict also talks about that, how just the gifts that we as people of faith have in the sphere of social, inf- of, you know, of social relationships, of improving social conditions, our witness is so critical because we give a witness to the fact that we're doing this not, not only out of love for this person. Yes, I have love for this person, of course. But also out of this, the respect for this person's transcendent dignity as the yeah. image of God. Yeah. We don't just see this person as just a human person because we're also human people. We care about them, which would be fine you know, to some degree. But no, we even see God in this person. We see the image of the creator of all things in this person. An inestimably higher calling than just being a human Right. <laughs> Even though that is what a human is. But, you know, if we ha- if we just have a very humanistic or materialistic v- vision of things, we don't see the spiritual dimension. So we have a very special part to play. And even going back, you know, going back to talking about the African-American tradition, um, I, I actually wrote a, a, an article on this, which you know people can find. It was in something called the Black Catholic Messenger. And if you are an African-American Catholic who is like interested in this, um, I wrote something that talked about the intersection between uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision of a beloved community and the Catholic social doctrine vision of the civilization of love. They're, they actually came about, they were developed around the same time, which is very special. The first time that uh, around the same time, uh, it was St. Pope Paul VI who used the term civilization of love for the first time. And it was right around a few years from when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was talking about the beloved community, although he got the idea from somebody also earlier, a personalist philosopher named Josiah Royce. But um, this, there's such continuity, you know, between these visions like that King had when he was in the civil rights movement of 
the dignity of the human personality. And he was not Catholic by any means, um, but he still had, he still could see like, there's something about a world that's built on the dignity of the, the human person. This person is not just a creature like other creatures. No, this human person is the image of God. And as such, we have to do as much as we can to make sure that the human, that this human person who's in the image of God is thriving because as we do on to them, we're doing on to Christ, right? And, and that whole vision was really a lot of the ethos of the civil rights movement. And for you know, a lot of African-Americans who look to the civil rights movement as an important, even spiritual uh, movement with a lot of religious connotations, even that found its fulfillment for me as someone who was inspired by that in part in Catholic social doctrine. I felt like, you know, almost like, you know, some of the things that King mentioned in his own kind of personal meditations as a, as a theologian and philosopher, I was like, even though there's so many similarities, I find it even more perfected in church teaches about the civilization of love more than just a beloved community, but really a whole entire universe infused with love. And we bring that into our practical relationships with others. So, um, so yeah. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. I wonder if you can talk for a minute about the, the places that doesn't fit, because you mentioned before how yeah. you were, before you kind of you know, had kind of your, your reversion experience, I guess first Eastern, Eastern Orthodoxy and then to Catholicism, you were in this, you know, in this house working, you know, working yeah. in advocacy work, you know, doing, doing actions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, meeting people. And it was kind of weird you said at first when you were reading your Bible and kind of getting, getting into that because I guess there is yeah. also that aspect and certainly here I'm up in Canada and I think increasingly around mm-hmm. you know increasingly around the world this is this is expanding the new human rights idea things like euthanasia and and things like mm-hmm. uh, things like abortion as as a healthcare access issue right yeah this again is you know with with Roe versus Wade being re- being repealed like this is a new and again now I guess in a different way in the states these these kinds of things there's places where the church seems at odds with what the world yes. would consider social justice, right? There's there's lots yes. of areas where where it's like, yes, we, we line up. Like there's a lot of things that the church is like, yes, this is what, what you do. You take care of the poor. You take care of kids, orphans, widows, right? These kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. But then you're getting into the things more and more these days where it's like we're at odds. Like, no, actually, this, yes. I- this isn't compassionate health care as we understand it as Catholics. This is different, Right or this or this isn't the economic structure that we as Catholics should be supporting and upholding, even though it seems yes. like like you know this is the right thing to do. There's there's different areas where I'm seeing conflict more and more. I wonder if, if mm-hmm. you can talk to those areas where even even you know even social issues around say Black Lives Matter, those kind of protests mm-hmm. that are up to then, there there in all kinds of areas there's things that. The, the the world says here's social justice and we say well we know here is but these things i don't know does that does that make sense to you yeah absolutely <laughs> um absolutely <clears throat> and i feel like this is this is so relevant this is like uh it's really important and the reason why i spend so much time explaining <laughs> the vision that we have is because we are not you know sometimes we can take a defensive posture because there there's a vision of social justice that is even Cardinal Turkson, there's an African um, bishop who talked, he dealt with this exact topic because he was like a lot, we, we've always, or we've, we've for years, in fact, the Catholic church is probably, probably the originator of the term social justice. Definitely it was Catholics, I don't want to say Catholic church, but Catholics were the originator of the term social justice as we understand it today. 
And he was saying how the way that the world uses that term is not how we may understand that term. Right, right. Because again, how I was just elucidating it is we're all about the dignity of every human life, the dignity of every human person as the image of God and everything, every social structure, every institution, every decision, decision in accordance with our catechism, that is, the, that is the criterion by which we should judge every social, economic structure, political structure, decision, the dignity of the human person. So when you get to something like euthanasia, well, we can see clearly this is not honoring the dignity of every human life. It, 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 although it may seem to be compassionate, it, it betrays its own, <laughs> it betrays the premise, right? That every human life is so valuable that every structure, every decision should be around protecting it. So it can't be also about ending it and protecting it at the same time. Sure, yeah. You know, this idea of, well, is it a valuable life? Again, we already talked about it. It's the image of God. <laughs> every life is valuable, no matter what their developmental stage, no matter what their age, no matter what their disease or orientation uh, anything like that, their value is in their in their image, right? And so, even from the earliest church uh, times, we had these saints who rose up and they said, "These are these these people who are poor and sick. These are the uh, the treasures of the church. So we don't kill the treasures of the church. They're sick. We keep them alive. We try to do what we can. We try to make them comfortable. But we, we recognize the dignity and value of their life. You know, when it comes to um, you know, to speak on race, because I know this is something that I think a lot of people think about now when we talk about social justice. The church, um, to me, and I made this statement kind of controversial, I'll throw it out there, but I believe that the church is the fundamental, most anti-racist organization that there is in the world, globally. And why do I say that? I say that because the church is not simply, you know, uh, a set of uh, European hierarchies and structures. No, the church is a universal body with members across time, space, every... Many countries, I'll say every country, but almost every country, if not every country, is the most international organization that you will find. It is the most, uh, uh, the, the greatest image of unity and diversity that you will find, right? Um, but like I said, sometimes in the fight to try to create a world where, where that unity and diversity is understood and loved, um, sometimes people betray the premise of, again, the dignity of every human person. Of course, violent, even when uh, the protests were happening in my own city, this was, this was after I was back in the Catholic Church around the situation with, with uh, Mike Brown, um, or the situation with uh, George Floyd, you know, there were protests that were happening, um, and people were killed in those protests. How can this be the dignity of the human person? How can, that, how can this be about support? And I, you can understand, you know, when people being upset, having frustrations, uh, even Pope Francis talked about acknowledge the frustration that people will have around this circumstance. But the whole point is we have to we have to be true to our principles. And I think that's what Catholic social doctrine does for us. It, it paints this picture of true to your principles, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard. You may be very frustrated and upset and angry, and you may want to lash out against others and, and do things to try to get retribution. No, that's, that betrays the principle of the dignity of every person. And so the church does support uh, legitimate protest as a way of participation in a social context as a way of just voicing opinion. It shows actually our unity. That's why even in the church, you know, we can speak up against or uh, speak up about a decision that we don't agree with, even from somebody like our bishop or our priest in, in our parish, or, you know, somebody who's running a group that, you know, we're a part of, we can say, Hey, I don't agree with this decision. And we have the same right to do that in society. And the church teaches that as well. And we should stand up for justice um, when we have the opportunity, but always in a way that respects the dignity of people, even who disagree with us. And the fact that we're also called to love and have communion with them, whether you agree with them or not. <laughs> and so if you want people to have love and communion with you, of course, we have to continue that spirit, right? Which is, I think, why King's protest, even going back to, to the image that King gave us, 
which again, although he's not Catholic, there's many things that the church has even endorsed about his approach and how that in a special way mirrored some aspects of aspects of the church's own teaching. King, his whole idea was, I'm not going to work. We are not going to be, we're not going to do this in a way that is, um, uh, disruptive or destructive in any way. In fact, the whole point of our protest is going to be that we're going to march in silence. And as people attack us, as people do negative things to us, we're just going to take that. Now, people didn't agree with that. Obviously, people were like, okay, I don't agree with this approach. That's fine. But what was his image of why he did it? What was Mahatma Gandhi? And it was Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ himself, while he was being, um, you know, maligned, while he was being, he spoke up for himself, but he didn't fight back. And that's actually what um, King talked about and the reason he did that is not just to be a doormat but because he said that there was some force there was a moral force about just staying and doing the right thing there was a moral force about not ever violating your own principles that he believed in he also believed gandhi implemented in a special way and that was why he was successful looking back on king i think we can see even today the moral force and not necessarily king as an individual as much as the movement itself, the moral force that you know, people of all different political backgrounds now ascribe to the civil rights movement is because of how powerful that witness was. It was seen as a very authentically human witness. And that's his whole thing was to humanize and to bring about a more human society. And so as it pertains to the topics of race, um, I think it's really important that we never lose the goal. You know, and this is the conversation that I had, I've had with people on this topic is like, our goal is a more human society, a more united society, a society that's bound together in love. And so we have to always make sure that everything we do is moving in that direction, because if we're moving in a spirit that is um, about either fostering division, violence, something like that, all of that is against <laughs> what we're trying to achieve. So it's, it's incongruent, right? It's all about having our values correct. Uh, with Catholic social doctrine, we have four primary social values, right? This is, this is a deep cut of Catholic social doctrine, but truth, it. freedom, justice, and love. Truth, freedom, justice, and love. Those are the four like kind of cardinal virtues, if you will, of a society, of any social relationship. So any interpersonal relationship has to have those elements, truth, freedom, justice, and love as a manifestation of the gospel, right? And so with that being the case, you have to ask yourself that question. You know, am I, is this, even this action that I'm doing, is this in truth? Am I fostering greater human freedom? Am I fostering greater human justice and social justice? Am I fostering greater human love? And, and social flourishing through creating a civilization of love. Every single action or movement should have to go through those pillars and, and be judged in accordance with those. You know, I'll speak again, uh, finally, about, um, you know, a big part of my early life, too, was was pro-life. Um, it was actually not the opposite of pro-life. I was working for Planned Parenthood, which is like the biggest um, kind of abortion provider, um, most famously, and also contraception. And um, I had a huge conversion on that, right? Um, I grew up and totally, I didn't really have, I didn't really think about what abortion was. Like, that was a big thing for me. It was like a blind spot. Of course, I was always defending abortion. I was saying, of course, people, women need access to this. Like, it's, I shouldn't even say anything about it. It's really a women, only women should talk about this. Um, and I didn't think about what actually was happening in abortion. And what's happening in abortion is that a human life is ending. And so if you've listened to this podcast, you already know, okay. I just heard human life. So that means it's important. And it's ending. That means it's something that's not good, right? So the whole point is abortion ends a human life. And by the principle of every human life has inestimable dignity and worth, of course we can't support abortion. Not because we don't care about the woman who's having the child. No, actually, we, we care about her so much that we want to protect her child. We want to protect her and her lineage. We want to protect both of them um, because their value is so high. It's and, and again, 
this is a, another place where when you talk about advocating and talking uh, and, and making society a better place, uh, even St. John Paul II talked about how we have to make a society where we honor motherhood with yeah. the dignity that yeah. it deserves. Yeah. And partially it's because of the impoverishment of our vision of motherhood that abortion has kind of taken the, the centerpiece of so many cultures as it has. It's because we don't really value motherhood for what it is. We don't value that relationship, that bond uh, between a mother and a child. We don't honor that. And we don't create a society where that can flourish. It's so difficult for so many moms to just make it, you know, especially single moms. Um, single moms are the greatest demographic in poverty. And so that's, that's a big reason why a lot of people are like, I don't, I don't think I can have this child because I'm afraid of being poor. Yeah. And that's, a, that's something that can be addressed, something can be talked about and dealt with. And we should come together as a society to figure out how can we make this not as difficult? How can we help these people in, in some way that can make that uh, something that's possible for them? But 100% the solution is not, as Pope Francis said, to hire a hitman to end the person's life. No, that is not the reason. We, we have to be finding solutions and creative solutions. And people that say abortion is the solution to poverty, um, are, are, it's just such a sad, impoverished vision of, of, the, of the human person, of this such a beautiful relationship between the woman and the developing child that, she's, that is really her flesh and blood, um, that to end that would be the only way to have economic prosperity. It's very sad. Um, but the whole thing we have, we have compassion on folks who have those opinions because many of them haven't thought through the implications of that, but that's, it's another uh, topic that I had a big conversion on understanding, Hey, if I'm believing that, you know, we have to fight for the dignity of people who, um, you know, experience any kind of oppression economically or otherwise, how, how did I have such a blind spot about a child in the room, a, yeah. a child? Like I had such a blind spot about the value of that life. And so again, I think what's so powerful about the Catholic vision, which is not ideology, right? It's not political philosophy. It's theology, right? It's, it's for everyone. It's moral theology. What's so powerful about it is that it's consistent. Any of these ideologies you'll find in the world are going to be inconsistent. They're going to have these holes and you kind of have to jump through hoops to make it work. And you kind of have to like justify things and be like, oh, well, the, you know, the greater good or like, uh, you know, somehow it works out. No, with the church's vision, it makes sense. It makes sense with the beauty of the gospel. It's, it all lines up. It all is totally uh, in synchrony, uh, in synchronicity with scripture and, and with, with what we know from human reason. And you feel good about it because it is good. It's just a truly good vision. And, um, you know, that sometimes with different ideologies, even when they may have things that are good mixed in, often that's not the case. Often there's some blind spots and some things that, like I said about structures, if you don't have a converted heart, then you may recreate structures that are even worse than the ones that you were trying to solve in the first place. And so, um, that's why I think it's just so important that we delve into this tradition that we have because it's just so beautiful and it has so many of these answers that modern man's looking for about how do we structure a world that's reflective of Jesus Christ. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And I, you know, I I couldn't agree with you more, Lewis, on that point of that that consistent like integration. I mean, I can uh, part of my journey as an evangelical becoming Catholic was wrestling with the inconsistencies of my theology and realizing that what my theology yeah. was built on was, <laughs> right, was the theologians I was reading and their interpretation of Scripture and how they fit things together. And I was running yeah. into things where I'm like, wait, this doesn't fit with that. Like, this belief held here doesn't fit with this belief held here. Never mind from, from a secular world perspective, right? Not even a Christian perspective. You know, beliefs out in the world that this belief here doesn't fit with this belief here. These two things don't match up together we have to hold them yeah. in tension somehow and, and fit them somehow together. Yeah. <laughs> and I can remember, you know, reading the catechism for the first time, being exposed to the breadth of Catholic theology and seeing how all these things just so seamlessly fit together, 
right? Like, you know, exactly. the, yeah. the, the same reason why, you know, the church says this on, on what, where life begins is the same reason why it says this on, you know, why the Eucharist is important here. Like the, the, these theologies, the, the bits and pieces of them are all so tightly woven into this beautiful kind of seamless theology that touches every aspect of Catholic belief. And it's, it's so much more coherent than anything offered by, you know, by, by my experience of Christianity as an evangelical, but certainly compared to the, what's out there in the world, you know, the widely kind of held yeah. ideas of things, it's so radically different. And I think so much more satisfying, deeply Absolutely. satisfying yeah. to live in a place where those things fit together and make sense, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I want to, I want to like, if somebody like heard anything I said and was like, where is all this information? There's a book <laughs> called The Compendium of the Social Doctrine of the Church. I, this is my, I've read this book back and forward multiple times. Um, and don't do that. It's probably too much. But this book is <laughs> so powerful. But it's, it was so convicting for me as somebody who, you know, my whole, you know, my dad is still a community organizer to this day. And we disagree on many things. Um, but we have great conversations and he's going through a kind of conversion of his own experience. But, um, you know, the, I needed answers, right? And so many people, especially in the African American, the, in the Black Church, like the 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 experience of the Black Church and the 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 true oppression that African Americans faced uh, historically through slavery and that whole experience, which really gave rise to the ethos of the Black Church. Yeah. Anyone who's been to a Black Church, you know how even the music, the gospel music, has its roots in the slave songs. And, you know, how even where the places where people had to kind of politically meet to organize, to try to find ways to, to better their human condition, that was the church. And so that's why even to this very day, so many African-American elected officials are actually ministers because there's such a deep connection yeah. that, that it's like even with people who are not practicing their faith, they still see some value in this religious structure. But all of that, like all those things that, um, that for me were such an important part of like my cultural ethos. I found like, uh, just like I said, Pope Benedict has this awesome quote, like revelation purifies reason. It purifies what you have naturally. It doesn't eliminate, right? Um, grace perfects nature. And so like, as a, as an African American, you don't lose your culture. You don't lose that heritage or that awesome gift of your, of, of your cultural ethos that you were given, but it's like purified, refined and brought to an even higher place. I mean, um, for me, it's, it's, it's indescribable, but you find it all so coherent with the gospel, with with biblical revelation, with everything. Um, and so, yeah, highly recommend this book if you're interested in learning more about any of these topics because uh, it goes in so much more detail than I could, but it's just so beautiful. And, um, yeah, and, and again, the whole idea that the church from the very beginning has been doing this. This is not a new fad thing in the 21st, in the 21st century, right? And I think that's really important for us to have in mind so that we're not on the defensive, right? We have a beautiful heritage as as Catholics, as people of faith, as Christians with this ancient heritage of doing things to make the world a better place at all times and all places. Um, and so I, I think it's really important that we have that understanding to know that that same spirit of almost like evangelical social creativity to create the university, to create a hospital, right? Which you see even from the earliest fourth century yeah. monks creating hospitals basically and places where people who are homeless can live and people who are sick and we have to have that same creativity today in our social situations to create solutions to these new world problems, right? Especially as lay people, like whether it be elected office, whether it be in our local communities, like serving alongside others, whether it just be at home, creating a home where we care about um, those folks who, who don't have 
uh, or who are on the margins in some way, like even teaching our children just to have that awareness is a big deal at every single level. Um, but to know that this is not anyway a new fad that we're jumping on, right? As Chris, no, yeah, yeah. this is actually just bringing to light uh, the tradition we've had all the way from the very beginning, all the way from the Apostolic Church. <laughs> That's fantastic. Lewis, it's been an absolute thrill to have you on the show. I really appreciate your time. You are endlessly passionate with this topic, and I love that. I love when a guest yeah. <laughs> is just just loves that loves something so deeply. I think I think listeners will pick up on that that joy and enthusiasm and passion you have. It's it's fantastic. So thank you for sharing your knowledge and passion with us. Um, I'll put links in the show notes anywhere you want to point people towards. But where where did, is there anywhere that you do you want to point you, that that great book you showed us? I'll put links to that in the show notes. Anywhere else that you want to point them towards to find stuff you're doing or follow things you think are important they should be looking at? What do you want to tell them? Sure. Um, well, you know, I just want to plug Ark and Dove. Yeah. Um, which is the podcast that uh, Balthazar Media put out, and I was a part of that podcast. And for, if you are just curious to learn more about the connection between Catholicism and the the Black experience, highly recommend listening to that podcast. It's so it's so awesome. I mean, it's like a This American Lifestyle podcast. Yeah. I mean, we have stories there, current events. It's really interesting, and we have interviews also with Black Catholics today um, who are living out in their church experience, di- diverse Black Catholics with different views on things, who are sharing priests, bishops lay people. So listen to that podcast. I highly recommend Ark and Dove to find it on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Music. Um, you can follow me as well. Um, Lewis, L-O-U-I-S-D-A-M-A-N-I. That's Lewis Damani. You can find me at on Instagram. Um, and I have a link tree there and you can check out stuff I've written in the past, things like that. Um, if you'd like to learn more about things I've written about in the past. That's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being here. For This has been an awesome conversation. I'm really grateful to have uh, be able to have it with you. So thank you. I want to say God bless you, uh, the work you're doing for the church, and, and thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. What a fun conversation. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I enjoyed having that conversation. Lewis is a fantastic guy. I, we, this has been on the calendar for quite a while, actually. And I mentioned in the show that Edward connected us and uh, and kind of got that on the calendar for us. And I didn't quite know exactly how it would go if we'd have material to talk about long enough for an hour-long podcast. But God, I had no idea how enthusiastic or interesting or engaging Lewis could be on these topics and wow, hopefully you enjoyed that. I enjoyed that. Let me know. CordialCatholic at gmail.com is our email address. I am most days inundated and overwhelmed by the amount of email that we receive and can't get back to all of it. But I will get back to you. I'll read your emails as soon as possible. So thank you. Let me know. We're on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, at Cordial Catholic. Please find and follow us there. We are The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and the website is thecordialcatholic.com for uh, blog, for show notes, and all those kinds of things as well. To watch what you're hearing, head over to youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. And while you're there, please do us a favor and subscribe to the show. Hit the hit the bell, hit the thumbs up button, guys. The channel is growing uh, by leaps and bounds lately. And your subscription to the channel, subscribing, following it, will help it to continue to grow and get this conversation and others 
to a wider and wider audience. And that'd be fantastic because this is the whole point and purpose of this thing, guys. Spreading the joy, the excitement, the enthusiasm that we have for the Catholic Church that we absolutely love. Thanks for listening, guys. Please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you too. Take care. God bless. And see you soon. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.